Making a recipe that calls for butter? Make it better with European butter from France. With a minimum of 82% butter fat, it's no wonder French butter is the number one choice of chefs the world over. Whether you're whipping up an omelet, sauteing vegetables, or spreading it on toast, the rich, cultured flavor of butter from France always elevates. Be sure to look for Made in France on the label. And for recipes, tips, and tricks, go to tasteeurope.com. Apparently, the first ketchup was a mushroom ketchup. Tomato ketchup, like, was later in the game. The first, the first ketchups were a bunch of different types. People were just using different materials. But the most popular one was, I believe, in uh, in England, was the mushroom ketchup. You're listening to the Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Eliza Barbanel. The future of food is fungi. At least if you ask Adam DiMartino and Andrew Carter, the two co-founders of Smallhold. The new school farming company grows delicate maitake, spongy lion's mane, blue oysters, and more of our favorite bougie mushrooms in patented aquarium-like tanks and mega farms across the country. They're a favorite of buzzy chefs and major grocery chains alike, so today we're going deep on this mushroom moment, dare I say movement, and how they're forecasting the future of fungi. Adam and Andrew, thanks so much for coming on the Taste Podcast. I'm stoked to have you. Thanks for nice having to us. Be here. I feel like we're picking up a conversation we've been having for a while about mushrooms and food. For for listeners that aren't familiar, I actually got to edit um, the Smallhold Cookbook a couple of years ago, so this is an extra fun one for me. Yeah, it was a blast doing that. I'm glad to be here. Uh, to start, I like have to ask, and I hope that you don't hate me for this question, but I want to know if you watched The Last of Us and and if if what do you think about it in general. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, Adam played it, so I'm curious. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it was an amazing show. Uh, but, you know, I, I think that uh, I th- we were pretty concerned when it came out whether it was going to be a bad thing for Smallhold and mushrooms in general. But I think it's just ended up bringing more people to think about mushrooms in different ways. So, Yeah, what I'm are your supportive. thoughts as someone that played the game? Do you feel like it's bad PR for mushrooms? No, any any press is good press. Um, for mushrooms and, <laughs> and in general, <laughs> generally, no, I, I think it, um, it was an amazing game. First of all, um, it made me cry. I cried. Uh, that because was, it was so was, hard. <laughs> no, because it was so moving. Um, the storyline was amazing. Um, did you watch it? Yeah, I'm, I still haven't finished it. It's been a pretty slow watch for me. Not that I'm not into it, just that I, I've kind of stuck watching it with somebody who doesn't have any time to watch it. But, um, it, you know, I already love mushrooms and eat them all the time. But I feel like when the, the show first came out, there were a lot of people talking about being scared to eat mushrooms and kind of things in that vein. Well, a lot of the people that I know that are uh, really into mushrooms uh, actually swear by that that show. They 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 tend to say it's generally pretty accurate, uh, except for some of the molds in the beginning credits. Uh, apparently those are not as aggressive, uh, as, as they, they're supposed to be. Um, Insider tip. I never heard that before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, cordyceps are, they, they really do be like that. They really uh, <laughs> do be, uh, zombifying people. Well, not uh, for people. I think it's yeah. like border, yeah. it's extremely unlikely for that to happen. Um, you know, they, they talk about it in the beginning of the show that, 
if there was warmer temperatures and these uh, organisms evolved, then it might be possible. But it's, it's, you know, and you have a science mind, you can't say anything's truly impossible, but it's just very unlikely that that would happen. I definitely think there are more possible uh, disasters that might come of climate change than uh, zombie fungi. Yeah. And I mean, the, the, what I realized watching that show is the mushrooms aren't the scary thing. It's the people. It's the people. Yeah. Dun, so, dun, dun. yeah. Well, I think it's an interesting time for the show to come out because I know something we've talked about a little bit before is that it seems that every you know couple months there's a new mushroom trend piece coming out saying this is the mushroom moment in fashion or in design or in all these things. And then another one comes out that says, no, actually, like this is the mushroom moment. Uh, and obviously it's always the mushroom moment for you two. So I'm curious, like, what's your view on the mushroom trend cycle right, right now? What stage are we in? Beginning stages. Still. Yeah. It's, it's just keeps going. I think that it's, it's, uh, I think I'm sure that the aesthetic piece of it will come and go, you know, uh, people putting Amnita mushrooms all over everything, like the red and white mushrooms. Um, but I think that there are just, there are many things that we haven't even seen yet. Like I get really excited about, um, like environmentally friendly eating and carbon friendly diets. Like I'm not, I don't necessarily do that, but I think that a lot of people will, and it's going to be a new trend that will emerge soon. And mushrooms really play a good part in that. I mean, they're they're really efficient to produce. You can grow them on waste streams. There's a lot of reasons to consume them that are just outside of the health and cool factor. Um, and so not to say that I can see the future or anything, but I think that there are many other ways that this that the mushroom industry and mushrooms in general can get even more popular than they are right now. Yeah, I guess there's still a lot of way to go. Adam, I'm curious, what do you think? Do you think that mushrooms are are trendy and trendier than they have been? Well, yeah, um, but I, I, I'm i totally going to rip somebody's quote off right now. Do so it. whoever said this first, I'm sorry, but it's not the, uh, the mushroom moment, it's the mushroom movement. Uh, and... Honestly, like that, that's something I subscribe to. I, I guess I have to. But um, they, when people get into mushrooms, they're noticing another kingdom in, you know, the taxonomical classification. So they're realizing that there's this whole other facet to life, uh, which I think is hard to just call a trend uh, because that doesn't go away after you're done noticing it. It only gets deeper and more interesting. And so maybe not everybody will be super into mushrooms, but a lot of people didn't know that they were before and discover that by, you know, viewing it through the lens of popular culture or food or, or what have you. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And from like a, a mushroom PR perspective, I think that when I was growing up, at least mushrooms were one of the most popular foods for people to say that they didn't like. And now uh, maybe there are still mushroom haters, but I feel like there are a lot of people that would say mushrooms are their favorite food. When somebody tells me that they don't like mushrooms, you know, I don't, well, I don't say this back usually, but I think to myself often like, well, that means like, that's like saying you don't like plants <laughs> or animals. Can you connect <laughs> the dots on that? What do you mean? Well, because you're talking again about a kingdom. So like you're, if, the difference between a king oyster and uh, a lion's mane is significant. The texture, the flavor, uh, it's like saying, I don't like spinach. You could say that. I get it. Uh, but, you know, associating basil with spinach, maybe not so much. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And it also reminds me of, you know, maybe you just haven't had them cooked in the right way before, like Brussels sprouts when everyone was boiling them as opposed to hard roasting them. Huge difference. Yeah, or had a fresh mushroom, uh, like one that's that was grown near you or 
uh, didn't go through some crazy supply chain to get to you. Yeah. Can you maybe break down like what are the characteristics of a fresh mushroom versus maybe the kind of like sad shrink wrapped kind that we were eating in the past? Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's so many different ways to get mushrooms to people. A lot of people even haven't even had the shrink wrapped mushrooms. They get them canned or dehydrated. And there's a there's a place for all of these kinds of mushrooms. Dehydrated mushrooms have their definitely a, their own place. Um, but when you're dealing with like a whole mushroom that was harvested from a farm, um, most of them are either shipped from a single area in the United States or a lot of the time shipped from overseas in big containers um, and the mushroom mushrooms I, I don't want to say that everyone should just go eat like tons of old mushrooms or anything but getting it's not necessarily like a food safety concern to have an old mushroom usually it's just kind of dried up or soggy or lose loses nutrition or flavor in the decomposition process um, but when something is harvested and then gets to the shelf within a day or two then you have a like it's a firmer mushroom usually the colors are there uh the nutrition is definitely a lot more than it would have been if it was sitting on a shelf or sitting on a truck for a long time um and it's just a it's a completely different experience i mean a lot of the chefs that when we started the business were just so excited because the quality was different than anything else they could get yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And and while we're talking about kind of the beginnings of Smallhold, I find that so interesting because um, I know that it started six years ago. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, we, yeah, we incorporated in 2017. Andrew started growing mushrooms in his basement long before that, though. And it was like... Yeah, it was probably like a couple years before that that we started thinking about it. And then <laughs> it was, it wasn't until 2017 that Adam and I got to like quit our jobs and, and created Smallhold. That's when it really started moving. But yeah, we were, we were sort of talking about it a little bit before that. Right. So back in like the basement mushroom growing era, what kind of work were you both doing and what made you interested in, um, in mushrooms in that way? Before Smallhold, I worked on a lot of indoor farming projects, and so I was a grower for big greenhouse and some warehouse farms doing leafy green production. Um, and I kind of thought that it would be easy to do mushrooms. I was completely wrong. Again, as Adam mentioned, it's a it's another kingdom. It grows completely differently. Honestly, mushrooms are more like animals than they are like plants, and so you're managing just a completely different organism. And uh, I was working on a house my my family owned that was kind of falling apart. My parents passed away, and so we were just kind of fixing it up. And then we're growing mushrooms in the basement, kind of on the weekends. Can um, I ask what what kind of mushrooms were you growing in the basement? It was uh, trumpets. They were not psychedelic mushrooms, as a lot of people thought. And honestly, a lot of people that visited thought that it was psychedelic mushrooms. I mean, it looked crazy. I don't know. Well, I mean, a lot of people visited and like looked at the tents and said nothing weirdly. Uh, there was so like okay. Imagine you walk down into in like a suburban home in Mount Kisco. Mm -hmm. uh, you walk in and then you go into the basement and then there's what looks like a meth lab, uh, and there's literally a bunch of burners uh, <laughs> and a bunch of pots and like steaming stuff and like bleach and chemicals everywhere uh, and like weird pipes running out the window. Um, and then outside we used we had a cement mixer. Like a like one of the the home cement mixers is like a a stand up one you can get at Home Depot for like you know seventy bucks, uh, and then uh, have this awesome video of Andrew with his shirt off. 
yeah. uh, with a weed whacker just sticking it in there and like chopping out of straw. And this is like in full view of all the neighbors in the back. <laughs> yeah. And then when you say, oh, don't worry, I'm growing mushrooms in the basement. That They're doesn't like, help matters. Yeah. No, they don't want to know basically <laughs> the people who would come in. They didn't but, ask. Yeah. No one. Yeah. No one asks for sure. But it was it was trumpets and we we're growing it on straw, which is not the best way to grow trumpet mushrooms. We grow mostly on sawdust now. Um, but we did that for a while. I mean, it was, it was, uh, it was a fun time down there. Um, but eventually we got our hands on a shipping container, which we planted in Williamsburg at the Domino factory. And that was when we could really start showing different people, the mushrooms that we were trying to grow and getting more and more people into it, which is kind of when the company started. Mm -hmm. And and what were, Adam, what were you doing in this era besides taking videos of Andrew being shirtless, um, weed whacking things? Well, honestly, well, Andrew was starting to farm mushrooms in the, or grow mushrooms in the basement. I was on a motorcycle trip uh, for eight months. Nice. Um, finding myself. <laughs> <laughs> Where were you going? I guess back to Brooklyn. Uh, <laughs> I tried to live in like multiple other places in the country and, and uh, failed, I guess, or just didn't like them. Um, you know, no, nothing against San Francisco. Um, but uh, I wound up back in Brooklyn, actually on Andrew's couch, uh, and I didn't want to get back into consulting. I was consulting in like data management and stuff like that before I left. Uh, and so and I did startup stuff. So I started a couple companies and uh, worked in the internet and internet privacy. Uh, but I was swinging a hammer for Andrew on the shipping container just because I really was trying to not go back to that. Uh -huh. um, and then one day I was like, man, you should probably pay me. Here we are now, Here we are. recording a podcast. <laughs> so something that I think is interesting about Smallhold and, and certainly how I first got to know about y'all is just the relationships that you built with chefs here in New York and having the grow tanks in restaurants in the city. And I'm curious about like what made you decide to go that approach um, into like kind of aligning yourself with these chefs in that kind of early era. We needed to prove that there was a market for, for mushrooms, like specialty mushrooms. So nobody actually, even in New York, a lot of the chefs uh, that we approached didn't know, you know, people, chefs actually up until very recently, uh, many chefs would just be like ordering mushrooms, capital M. They're like, I want mushrooms. They wouldn't be like, I want a lion's mane or five pounds of lion's mane. Uh, and so we had to go and validate the market for what we originally were selling, which is the tanks, the mini farms. Uh, and so uh, that was that was a huge <laughs> process. Um, visited a hundred uh, restaurants pretty much in the space of a few weeks, uh, walking around with King Oysters, which is what we had at the time. Uh, and nobody said no. They were all like, yeah, I want those mushrooms. Um, and so we knew we had something. Yeah. I mean, I think that the, it was a mutual thing with the restaurant community. We were really excited to work with everyone, but I think a lot of people liked what we were trying to do. And I don't, I mean, we're pretty strategic about a lot of things, but I think that especially our approach with the restaurants was kind of like we we saw the potential of working with people because they were excited about working with Smallhold, and then we started thinking about how to approach it rather than like brainstorming in the beginning and being like, this is exactly how we're going to approach this. Um, but, you know, we're in New York City, and some of the best chefs in the world are here. And um, it was really intimidating. Yeah. Yes. Who are some of the early chefs that were kind of champions of the Shout brand? Out. Shout out to Tara Norvell. Yeah, Tara Norvell was the first person to buy mushrooms from Smallhold. She, she, um, and she told us about the food groups. Yeah. 
she told us of her vision of a food pyramid, but around it was mushrooms. Whoa. <laughs> I love that. And this is when Tara was cooking at Honey's? No, this is way before that, actually. Okay. I think she was uh, doing, like, menu stuff for different people, and she was doing different pop-ups, but it was pre-Honey's. Cool. Um, Who else? Give me some more names. Arlie. Yeah. Honey's. Mm-hmm. Arlie yeah. at Honey's. And Angela. Angela Dima Yuga. Uh, she... When she was she, at Mission Chinese. Yeah, she was She was crazy enough to let us install a mushroom farm above a bar, uh, which we were crazy enough to put in, which is also, the rule was just don't catch anything on fire. <laughs> which, like, literally. <laughs> How did that go? <laughs> never, never caught anything on fire. Almost. No comment. No comment. <laughs> <laughs> it was never our fault. <laughs> we didn't catch anything on yeah. fire. There was a spark, but that was their, uh, another person. Okay. Um, yeah. No one present here. <laughs> it's almost like, so it, it's like a business card almost as well, because the, the mushroom farms, especially in this era when they're in the restaurants, it's like an aquarium tank kind of, and you can see the mushrooms growing inside of it. And it's smart to have it above the bar in one way, because that space was so trippy and cool, that mission Chinese. And you walk in, you see those mushrooms. They changed their aesthetic as well uh, during the time that we installed that. They, the Nobody probably really remembers this, but their lights were really in, intense. Um, yeah. Like they used to have full pink lights, actually, and then they changed them to blue. That's cool. It was amazing, actually. It, it made the food look crazy. Uh-huh. So were you thinking about it from a marketing perspective at all, that people were going to see this thing and then find out that it was small hold? Sort of. It's Angela kind of called that out, actually. So, um, I mean, we didn't reference Bunker and Jimmy. Jimmy. Uh, so we... Tara was our first person who bought mushrooms, but Bunker Vietnamese was the first group that allowed us to install a mini farm. And the first one was in their, their basement, and it was crazy down there. Um, but <laughs> Jimmy we, was the real crazy one. <laughs> yeah, and um, and so this was when they moved into the 99 Scott spot, so it was after they moved out of their smaller spot before that. Um, and at that point, we thought that this was going to be utility. We thought that this would be really fresh, exciting mushrooms for people, but it would not be in front of customers. And Angela saw it and was like, no, we need this in front of people. And we did it at Mission. And then as soon as that happened, then that became part of the strategy because everyone wanted that, you know, was was putting it in front of everyone. And so everyone could see uh, the mushrooms growing there. Um same sort of thing with our brand, honestly. Like we um, thought this is going to be a utility. We didn't know that people were going to want to associate with small hold and small hold would be the thing that people want to put in front of people. But um, it's 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 still the case. Like people are excited about the brand. They're putting our name on the menu. They We put it on the mini farms. We do it all over the place. Um, but you know, we, we definitely, I'm not saying that all this kind of fell in our lap, like we're definitely strategic about stuff, but we definitely, uh, you know, see, we kind of try stuff out and then see what other customers want and go with it there. Yeah, I'm curious how you think the pandemic impacted all of it as well, because I have like probably one of my strongest memories of the early pandemic here in New York was that the city was shutting down and then the meat hook was, y'all did a pop-up on the sidewalk in front of the meat hook, which is that butcher in Greenpoint, to pick up the blocks to propagate your own mushrooms. And I stuffed one in the back of a Revel scooter and then brought it back to my apartment. And then for the early pandemic, that was like 
every day time is passing, you can see how much the mushrooms are growing. And I know that like other people did that as well. And I feel like it's such a cool example of like the mushroom movement to borrow your language and that people were interested in growing mushrooms at home. Do you feel like that impacted this degree of brand association that people have? It was a huge part of the the small hold story. Um, it's tough to relate that to people who weren't in New York. Yeah. Um, not to like exclude anybody, but um, the pandemic sort of affected New York City differently than it did a rest like the rest of the United States. I, I think. Yeah. Well, we were um, we were kind of like the first. Yeah. Epicenter here, and, we, and no one knew it was happening. Exactly, yeah. and it was really freaky, uh, and so um, that's like honestly a whole podcast episode in and of itself but it was that's what happened with that was um can i tell the story uh, yeah uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah okay uh yeah so um we paused for two days and then we lost all of our restaurant customers uh because obviously nobody was going to cook mushrooms because everybody was shutting down uh and then uh, our supplier was throwing out literally all of their stuff we were throwing we were considering throwing out all of our our mushrooms and then all of our blocks uh the blocks being the the substrate that the mushrooms grow off of uh which represented another you know couple thousand pounds of of mushrooms uh and and so uh instead of doing that we decided that we were going to make a website with no oh we put it on instagram yeah we put it on instagram and we had a google sheet Oh yeah, that had a bunch of like smiley faces all over it, and yeah. yeah, and so people could sign up on the Google Sheet to get. Well, at first it was the pop up, and then we started doing the home deliveries and driving the van around because we had a van. And Brent, Brent, Brent from I don't know who reached out to. I think we we reached out to him because the I live in we you were living in Greenpoint. Yeah, we were living in Greenpoint, and they had a line around the block just like everybody else, uh, and sort of asked them, like, hey, can we sell mushrooms to the people standing in line? Um, the people standing in line at the meat hook to buy To buy meat, meat yeah. yeah. To buy their fancy, pop, you know, groceries. Yeah. For, <laughs> to for hunker the down, yeah. yeah. <laughs> for the two weeks the city was supposed to be closed, yeah. So Louie moved into the farm, um, our, our, at the time, head farmer uh, and now head of R&D. Um, and he literally just basically bunkered uh, – and a mushroom farm is actually a really great place to be during a pandemic because we have a lot of sterilization equipment and a lot of uh, PPE. So we have like, you know, full face respirators and like pump we had sprayers. Like barrels of rubbing alcohol. Yeah, rubbing alcohol. You can find it on Amazon. We had literal barrels. You were uh, rich in rubbing alcohol. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I, I remember going to the door and opening it and, and Louis is just dressed in like a full bunny suit, a bunny suit being like the, you know, like a painter's suit with a hood mm-hmm. and a full face respirator. And he was like, and then he like sprays me with the pump sprayer, like, <laughs> and then we get in the van, which we also sprayed the interior down and I get out of the van and I sprayed the sidewalk. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and then we started selling mushrooms to people at the meat hook for and we did this every week for Yeah, and then the wow. and then yeah, and then the grow kits. Thank you, Brent. People, yeah, <laughs> seriously. Um and then the grow kits, we we it was this funny thing where we were like trying to sell some, but then we were also giving a lot away cuz a lot of people were in a really rough spot, lost their jobs, and a lot of like our friends and the company friends uh, were in it was tough for everyone, but it was def- definitely really tough for some people out there. And we would give away a lot of mushrooms. We would like, it was like a 
pay what you wish kind of thing for a lot of people. And then we started giving away the grow kits and selling them too. Um, but that was kind of the most affordable way to get people these these mushrooms if they grew it themselves. But then at the same time, that was also a really fun thing to do during during quarantine because it grows really fast. That, yeah. You know, these they're like blue oysters or lion's mane. Will It'll look different every day, you know, every day you wake up. Yeah, every morning it would be like, oh, get up and see my new roommate and how much bigger they've gotten overnight. Totally. And then people started naming them. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to remember. I do, I definitely named mine, but I feel bad that I can't remember it anymore. But then also you have the experience of, you know, having so much mushrooms to cook with at once when they start to get ready. That's also like an interesting part of that moment in time, you know? Yeah. Most people have mushrooms. never like had a cluster as big as your head, you know, because that would, <laughs> that's, that's hard to, to buy unless you have a, a hookup. Yeah. So are the grow kits still being offered online? Not right now. Well, we we moved that to be more of like a seasonal thing. And so if people check back and on near, near like the holidays, then you'll, they'll see it pop up. Or if they subscribe to our newsletter, we'll kind of explain it when it comes out. The Mushroom Digest? The Mushroom Digest. We just interviewed uh, Bryn Dentinger, uh, a mycologist uh, from Utah. Um, and he just got back from Queensland, Australia. Uh, and he's one of the world's leading experts on bolites like porcini. Cool. Uh, yeah, it's pretty interesting. For all the mushroom freaks. Yeah, that's one Shameless of my favorite, plug. <laughs> favorite newsletters. Oh, thanks. It's, it's so funny because I feel like you are positioned in this mushroom world where there are so many different, there are foragers, there are these artists, there are people that are growing on like farms like you and that I feel like the newsletters are really good eye into all of that beyond like even the aesthetic part of mushrooms, but the people that are like working with mushrooms on a daily basis. Did you like want to have the newsletter exist in that way? The newsletter comes from this place where it that was our one piece of very purposeful marketing back in the day. And it came from uh, back when I worked for my old boss, who used to be like a New York Times editor. Uh, and he explained to me this, and I don't know if this is interesting to, to anybody, but it, I, I find it very intriguing. The, co- the barrier and the cost to entry uh, for an expert is much lower when there's a nascent industry. And so if you want to be an expert, like a thought leader, you start early with your contacts and you're not going to pay as much as later on to get into that thought leadership position. Like mm. it won't take as much effort or time or money. And so that was a sort of whole philosophy. And then also the the point of it isn't to promote small hold, uh, it's to promote mushrooms. Uh, and we felt that by promoting mushrooms, uh, we would, you know, promote sort of and platform other people. Uh, and that was the best way to garner organic support for our business at the time. And it still is. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it brings me to something I wanted to talk about, which is that I think when we say farming, there's maybe an image that people get into their heads that I certainly would of, you know, a, a bucolic farm somewhere upstate and the skill that you're working at. And also what you're saying a little bit about mushrooms being a different um whole like kingdom and species is actually quite different. You have these like lavender lights in the warehouse and these big tanks. So I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about the scale that you're currently working at, the cities that you're in, how many mushrooms you're growing, and also the challenges that come with working at that scale. Yeah. So we started here in Brooklyn, uh, or we're in New York right now, but we started in Brooklyn. That's where our headquarters are is. And we have a facility in Fort Greene. Um, and we built that one in 2020. We built another one in Texas, in Austin, and that's now an R&D space. But then we built a larger facility in Buda, which is about 
15 minutes south of Austin. Um, and then we ended up building a larger space in Vernon outside of uh, outside of Los Angeles. Like it's about 15 minutes east of downtown LA. Um, we launched that late last year. Um, across the whole operation, we can grow around like 50 or 60,000 pounds per week. Um, and the, most of those mushrooms are distributed to region to grocery stores and customers that are in those regions. Um, New York is completely maxed out. We've been here for a little while. We'd love to build more build more supply here, but we are definitely focusing on Texas and Los Angeles at this point. And how did you pick those cities? Was that just trying to cover as much of the country as you can? Uh, well, what I mean, were you gonna say? I mean, I think there were a few things. Uh, New York, it's because we were here. And he's from and Los Angeles. From, yeah, I love L.A. <laughs> um, Me too. Yeah. Also, people um, like salad there. Yeah. Well, <laughs> also true. Te- Texas, we had a relationship with a retailer out there called H-E-B um, and Central Market. People uh, love H-E-B. The people love H-E-B and Central Market's amazing. Central Market has mini farms in every Central Market in Texas. Wow. Um, and they have just piles and piles of small hold mushrooms. It's really, it's an amazing grocery store. <laughs> and anyway, th- during COVID, when we were doing all this block stuff and then also selling direct, basically like halfway through the year, all these retailers, these grocery stores started coming out of the woodworks and realizing that mushrooms were really trendy and they wanted mushrooms with higher quality and different varieties. And we've been trying to talk to these people for years at this point. And um, now you come crawling back. Yeah, sort of. And <laughs> But Central Market, the people there were just extremely supportive and just very excited about us being there. Um, and that definitely weighed heavily on our decision to move to Texas to or to build there. Um, but it's been good. Like we're also in a bunch of other retailers there now as well. But Central Market was the first customer there. Um, and then Los Angeles, I love LA, sure, but it also had the largest increase in mushroom demand in the country uh, during COVID, and so a lot of uh, a lot of people are eating a lot of mushrooms in Los Angeles, and so we thought that that was a good place for us to go. So it's the, the demand side, but also there's a supply side as well, where um, we were talking about the freshness of mushrooms. Most of the mushrooms in the country are grown actually on this side of the country, although there are large farms everywhere, but most of those are button mushroom farms, which is actually a totally different kind of mushroom to grow. Um, We grow on basically the mushrooms that we grow, you would find growing on trees. Uh, And they have a shorter shelf life than button mushrooms, which are basically like the iceberg lettuce of the mushroom world in the grocery store. It's hard to ship a, a blue oyster from New York to Los Angeles and still have it be good on the shelf. Uh, and so because of that, um, you have to farm locally, which is kind of cool, uh, or at least more locally. Uh, and that's what we wound up doing is uh, moving the facility to the space. And then what we had to do was make a, a national supply chain uh, for specialty mushrooms, which, you know, looking back on it is ridiculous uh, and very stressful. But also, uh, I think it gave us a lot of uh, a first mover advantage uh, when we decided to sort of go national like we did uh, and also give us the support network as we continued to grow. Yeah, you're kind of blowing my mind right now. I've always wondered why button mushrooms are the only mushroom you can find in some places. Are you saying it's because they're the easiest to ship? So a lot of produce in the country is like this. If yeah. you really think about it, the supermarket uh, back in uh, you know the 80s, right, the 90s, the heyday of the massive supermarket, you know, purchasing habits and, and, and everything like that, 
we conformed a lot of the food to fit into that box, literally, and the highway system. So uh, you, if you can imagine, like, back in the day, like, you could go to the supermarket and you could get uh, – there's three kinds of apples. There's red, there's green, and there was uh, uh, yellow. Yeah. Right? Uh, or you can get, like, you know, spinach and uh, maybe romaine and iceberg. Now you have this plethora of greens. You have this plethora of apples to choose from in, in any market. You go up or down market. Uh, and so we saw that coming for mushrooms. Uh, and yeah, so uh, button mushrooms, the, they they have a similar sort of profile in my head at least to iceberg lettuce in that it's good on a pizza topping. It's not a bad mushroom. Uh, they have a – you can make lots of them, but they're really easy to ship. They have a great shelf life, just like a beefsteak tomato, no taste, right? But it ships good and it looks good on a shelf. And so that's what those are for. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. I feel like uh, it's something I never really questioned. I was always like the least excited about that mushroom and it was the one that was the easiest to find. Um, so we're talking about growing mushrooms. We're talking about logistics and distribution a little bit. I'm curious, you know, you've done so much different work with small hold. What's what's a part of your job right now that is like the most surprising, that would have been the most surprising to you if you were telling yourself five years ago or 10 years ago about your job? The thing that I think is the craziest thing, which I think a lot of business owners talk about, is like people management. And uh, it's hard to manage people, but just sort of like building relationships and building the team and talking to people. And, you know, we're we're almost 100 people at this point. And so it's a lot of personalities and thoughts about how we should run the business. And we try to hear everyone out and try to incorporate all of that. And it's, it's a lot. And... I did not go to business school. I like spent my whole career before this, like growing plants and managing some teams, but like, I'm like the science guy and I'm getting better at helping at manage people, managing people. But, um, that I did not see coming until, you know, we started really bringing on a lot of people. Mm -hmm. What about you? Yeah. So this is not my background at all. (laughs) Working with mushrooms is the surprise. (laughs) Yeah. Working with mushrooms generally. Um, no, I, I built mushroom farms. That's like a thing that I never thought I would say. Um, uh, you know, building one mushroom farm is crazy. Building two, building, yeah, I don't know how many we've built, you know, up big and small. Uh, that's a that's a whole thing. Um, but the surprising thing about t- today, I guess, that my, my job, uh, my day in, day out, is like I get to learn like deeply about the flavor and history and culture of mushrooms, uh, which... It's just so fun, <laughs> like to be able to continuously dig deep on a subject that's so expansive and to never find the bottom is like, what else could you wish for in a, a profession? Yeah, it is an endless pit. Uh, I feel like once you start digging into mushrooms, there's so many different interesting parts about how cultures have held on to them and uplifted them in different ways. Um, and it makes me want to ask you about, like, if you were stranded on a desert island, <laughs> you could only have one mushroom, what would your mushroom be? Mine? Yeah, oh, I'll, oh. I'll tell you mine also last. Yeah. Um, well, so singularly, or can yeah, I have you, one type of mushroom? Um, I just want to make sure. I, not Sorry. only one single mushroom, but one type of mushroom. That would be the jack-o'-lantern mushroom. It's a bioluminescent, uh, and I would write SOS in the sand with it. Ooh, okay. Tricky. Wow, that was a tricky one. I would say like blue oyster mushroom because it's probably the one of the easier ones to grow, and so you could propagate it. 
I mean, I guess if there are, it depends how you define a desert island mushroom. If there's tons of it, then I would still take a blue oyster, but it would allow me to be a little more sufficient, I would think. Yeah, I think in this fantasy concept, it would be plentiful regardless of how easy it is to grow. But I appreciate that you're being practical. Yeah, in that I'll way. still take blue oyster. It's still yeah, a good one. That's a solid one. Yeah. I, I think I would do psilocybin because I would probably get bored on the desert island. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but if not that, then probably shiitake because I think those are so much, they're so delicious, you know? Yeah. I'm, uh, yeah, I'm obsessed with them right now. Right now? Yeah. I, I was just in Japan. Yeah. yeah. Were you, um, tell me about your trip to Japan a little bit and the mushrooms that you saw there. I saw a lot of shiitake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, we we farm mushrooms uh, and we farm a lot of them. Just, I think it's important to recognize where they come from, a lot of them. And so like a yellow oyster mushroom, for years we were growing them and uh, they're beautiful and they're amazing mushrooms. Uh, and I was entirely just I, I assumed they were from Russia, but I went to Hokkaido and they're like, no, what we're trying to do is mimic a, a Hokkaido summer with our environment. And I was like, why? They're like, well, because that's where they come from. Mm. And so, you know, I'm I'm literally going to the place where all of the mushrooms that we've been growing for all these years are, are from, like shiitake are from China, actually. Um, but uh, they were, you know, they have like sort of a colo- colonial name. That, that's a Japanese name. Um, but, uh, to understand, you know, how people have been growing these for, you know, a couple centuries and the practices that they've developed, uh, to develop the flavor and the genetics that they've been working on is insane. So you learn where umami like really comes from, like where, where the people have been selecting for umaminess in fungi for literally hundreds of years. Um, that's like profound, uh, because I've been trying to grow them for forever. But I really didn't understand it. Yeah. Did you learn anything that made you think about examining the way you grow mushrooms differently? Um, well, there's lots of things. Um, and we still have to discuss some of them. <laughs> I mean, you should talk about forest-grown shiitake. Well, forest-grown shiitake is a beautiful thing. And it's it's quickly becoming a thing of the past. Um, Are you saying forest-grown or forest-grown? Forest. Forest. forest yeah. Like well, with trees. Both, actually. They do, okay. they do force the fruiting of the shiitake with cold uh, water. Um, cool. And that's part of the sort of practice. Um, but, yeah, there's uh, agroforestry. Uh, in Japan, uh, if you think about land management and being on a series of small islands, uh, you become really good at it really quickly because you have a growing population. Uh, or at least this is my theory. Um, somebody can correct me. Uh, but essentially, uh, you learn to quickly you know, reinforce your soil and your forests. Uh, and shiitake grow on fallen logs. And so practicing sustainable forestry actually becomes a part of growing shiitakes. Um, you know, it's not majority of the shiitake is grown in Japan and China. And the United States are not grown this way because it's very labor intensive now. So I met one of like the last five of a hundred growers in this part <laughs> of Japan that I was in, uh, and he showed me how he does it. And it's a really interesting practice. He is one man with a tractor, and he grows three thousand pounds of shiitake a month, and he just cuts his own trees, he plugs them lugs them over to the farm, puts them in there. He burns the old logs for, for heat for the farm, and it's been doing it for, this is a third-generation farm. So uh, patience is what I learned. Mm. 
I like that because I think that a lot of the conversation around mushrooms in this moment is talking about them as a future of food or a way that we can be feeding the new world. But they obviously have been around for such a long time and they're from the past also. There, there is a god in China. There the is a shiitake god. god. Yeah. 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 And so you go and like people like like multiple townships are centered around just shiitake production. Yeah. Um, and this is going back, you know, a couple thousand years. Yeah, and also isn't um, like one of the pagan rituals that is one of the predecessors to Santa Claus and Christianity, doesn't that have to do with uh, one of a mushroom also? The Amanita? Yeah, like Amanita. Santa is a mushroom. Yeah, I mean, that's the, there's definitely a theory around that. Wait, that Santa is a mushroom? Santa is a mushroom. That's, yeah, there's a lot of people that think that, that it's like, he's like a sim- symbol for Amanita mushrooms. And also the other thing is that reindeer eat Amanita and then you can drink their urine and you can hallucinate. If you drink it. And just to connect the dots, Amanita <laughs> is a red and white mushroom. Yeah, yeah it's the, the classic. Emoji. Right. So th- it's not that Santa is an embodied mushroom, but that the, well, so his colors are, mu- are I, mushrooms. Some, some so, people think that, that yeah, it's, it's, he's representative of the mushroom itself. So the reindeer, uh-huh. they, they pee the hallucinogen yes. uh, that you would imbibe. And then oftentimes, um, I forget the whole thing, but basically Santa is red and white. Um, and... Uh, that's not because of Coca-Cola. Uh, people really think that he's a mass hallucination, I think, is what it was. Or he's like a guy that drank a bunch of the ranger urine. I mean, I'm not sure. <laughs> Someone correct us. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't, yeah, I don't celebrate Christmas, so I don't know, but this sounds exciting to me. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> there's always a first <laughs> if you want to go to Scandinavia <laughs> and meet Santa. Yeah. Um, I mean, you can get Amanita. You can, yeah, you can, you know, find Amanita all over the place. And it's not a, I mean, there's there's more and more people that are figuring out different ways to consume it. But it's not, um, it's not something that you should just uh, eat in the woods. No. Necessarily. Amanita, check you on that. <laughs> Sorry. We're going to have to edit out that pun. It's too bad. <laughs> I'm sure people ask you this all the time, but obviously we're on the precipice of uh, psychedelic mushroom legalization in the United States, or at least like loosening around that. Like, Is that a, an area that Smallhold would ever venture into? I mean, it's not part of the plan at all. Um, I think that it would take a lot of uh, change to allow us to kind of participate in that. Um we have a lot of knowledge on how to grow mushrooms. We have some pretty crazy equipment that we invented that could grow a really, um, maybe you can make amazing operation out of it. And so we definitely pay attention. Um, but, you know, we're in a lot of ways, we think that the food industry is a lot bigger of a problem and a bigger uh, market, you know, to get more mushrooms into people's hands than than that. Not to say it's not important, like we're all believers at Smallhold of um, of more and more people seeing the power of uh, psychedelic mushrooms, but, um, you know, we don't have to be growing and selling all mushrooms, you know. Yeah. There's, there's more money in, in food, to be to be honest. <laughs> like, I mean, just t- take a step back and think about how I, I'm not sure, like, how often or how much mushrooms you might consume that aren't, you know, that are psychedelic. But uh, I have to assume it's not lots frequently no. uh, and they're not that expensive. And so if you could just sort of go upwards from there, um, people consume lots more food mushrooms. It's not like. You know, it would be growing marijuana. Actually, people, there's daily consumers. Uh, but with psychedelics, um, 
you know, the application is a little bit more limited than with. Mm. uh, That makes sense. And also, you know, we've talked a little bit about this, but um, so many people are looking to mushrooms as a way of feeding people at scale and as this kind of future solution to the problems that we have um, with our current food system. And I'm curious if you could tell me a little bit about the way that you see that, like mushrooms in general as a a future of food and then maybe small holds specifically. Yeah, I mean, they're... There's so many reasons to like mushrooms. I mean, they're the, as far as the future is concerned, you don't you don't use a lot of resources to grow them. Um, pretty much all mushrooms are grown on some form of a waste stream. Um, ours are grown on sawdust from the timber industry. Button mushrooms are grown on compost. You can train mycelium to grow on all sorts of different things. I mean, um, they're yeah. You can you you can grow on most trash actually if you really wanted to, um, and then the waste that you produce can go to big compost projects. And at the same time, this food is high in fiber. It's nutritious. It tastes good. It's fun to eat. Um, there is some protein in it. It's not like a massive amount of protein, but there's an argument that people might not need as much protein as they think they do, um, and. So I think there's just so many benefits to it. I mean, we did a lot of work to understand the impact of our production and our mushrooms, and um, we couldn't find really much food that used less water than <laughs> our operation. Um, and the carbon impact is less than other mushroom producers, but that is like a fraction of all that alt protein and alt alt meat stuff, and then that is already a fraction of the meat industry. Um I don't. I don't think that any we should expect everyone to be eating one thing. I, the future that I hope for is a future where we can eat all sorts of different things and have a ton of different options. That's what I see as sustainability is more like being able to imitate what we're currently doing in a way that is you know that can last rather than how we're kind of currently doing it, which is is not is not necessarily sustainable. Um, as far as society is concerned, hmm. what do you think, Adam? No, you put it. He put it very well. Um, <laughs> I, I, the only thing that I would add is that somebody eating mushrooms thinks more about their environment. And so, w- when you're talking about trends, there's a big trend right now around regenerative agriculture, whatever that means, right? And and circular economies, whatever that means. Um, and I think. Those are really, really good things to be promoting and paying attention to and uh, supporting as a food company or an agriculture company. Uh, but ultimately, like the thing that, you know, for for better or for worse, that people care about when they're shopping, you're an animal, right? Like you're going into this environment with lots of colors and sales and an overabundance of food in a way. Um, they care about flavor. Uh, and if you can find a way that makes people interested in those things... Uh, through food, then I think that you've you've really you've hit something magical, um, and if it can be good for the environment and it could be good for people, and also mushrooms are center of the plate, so it can actually be very filling. Uh, and they have umami, which is like a it's satiety; it's, it makes you feel full and satisfied. So I think that they're very helpful in that respect. Yeah, I think to me, mushrooms are a comfort food almost when you think about like a, a mushroom soup or a mushroom pasta. Like there's something about that that's really soul satisfying in that way, which yeah. makes a lot of sense. Same. 
Um, I know that like we're talking about all the different variety of mushrooms that are out there. And, and you introduced dried mushrooms recently, which I've never seen dried mushrooms that are um, not a shiitake before, maybe just because of my own grocery shopping. So why did you decide to introduce the dried mushrooms and how do they fit into the rest of your whole system? So um, when you grow anything, when you're a farmer, you have uh, off cuts or waste, right? So uh, we, as we were growing smallhold, would have significant amounts of poundage sometimes that you might have a, a bout of, uh, it's called blotch, uh, which causes a discoloration on the mushrooms. And again, getting back to the grocery store, you know, especially being, you know, a human animal in that store, you're going to look and you're going to see a white mushroom versus a brown mushroom. You're going to take the white mushroom because it looks fresher, even though it's just the same. And so we have to do something with those and we dry them. Uh, we also take all the trimming uh, from when we pack in our clamshells. Uh, and that's a way to, you know, save money, right? We're saving stuff that we would otherwise throw away uh, or compost, actually. Um, and then it's also a way to to have a, a shelf-stable product, to be honest. Yeah. And what are the mushrooms that y'all currently have dried? Mm, uh, we have uh, oyster, royal trumpet, lion's mane. Um, those are the main ones? Those are the main ones, yeah. Um, and we don't do the shiitake. Um, although when you dehydrate a mushroom uh, and you re reconstitute it, what you're actually doing uh, is you're actually enhancing the flavor of the mushroom, which is a crazy thing. Uh, you're not removing the flavor. Uh, it makes the umami more umami. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, like there's there's definitely a use case for the dried mushrooms. Um, I find that uh, when you're making soups or putting them in rice or something like that, um, you end up, a lot of, like fresh mushrooms are great to include in that, but... Uh, using dehydrated mushrooms, even hydrating them with something that's like a flavorful, like a, a broth, or just, you know, obviously cooking in a soup, then you can have a different experience than you would have with a fresh mushroom. And so it's not just that it's, you know, scrap mushrooms and you should eat them because they're extra for small hold. There's, there's definitely other, other ways that you can use it as a, as a consumer. Yeah, I've just been using them in stock recently, but I think, um, you know, soup season is kind of coming to a close here in New York, and now I'm excited to be thinking about what else I should be putting them in instead. I don't know if you have any suggestions for me. I was thinking quesadillas. What do you think about that? Of course. Sure. Yeah. Right? Yeah, anything anything quesadilla or taco. Yeah, or you could, like, <laughs> hydrate them and then blend them up and make, a like, a pate or something. Risotto. Ooh, I almost, you know, I almost made a, a vegan chopped liver for Passover with the mushrooms, and then I just ran out of time. But I was excited about that idea, I would say. A big part of what we're doing uh, right now is taking all the waste products that we generate. That's that's actually my job right now, um, uh, and turning it into uh, my, my team's job. Um, Your job is to single-handedly eat all of the waste nom, mushrooms, nom, nom, nom. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big job, but somebody has to do it. It's going to be you. Um <laughs> But uh, no, no, we take uh, all that, and, and so any anything that we have, hopefully, is going to be saved, stored, uh, and sold as dehydrated mushrooms, or we're actually taking those and then uh, turning them into value-added products that then expose people to mushrooms in new ways. So not everybody likes to buy a lion's mane in the grocery store because they don't know what it is. Uh, and so putting that into another product and exposing them through that lens and merchandising it next to the fresh product then uh, exposes people to that mushroom and gives them like a a window into how it might be when they cook with it. And that's sort of our master plan. Uh, and then same with the compost products. We take our compost from our blocks 
uh, and we're making vermicompost with that. So vermicompost is basically worm castings. Uh, and so long story around that one. <laughs> but basically, uh, we feed the blocks with food waste to worms and then they poop it out. And then that's really nutritious for your soil. Um, and so literally, if we can, we can close all those loops as much as possible. Andrew made... Uh, the point to me about the vermicompost, because most of the vermicompost uh, that's not sold in the consumer channel uh, gets sold to marijuana farmers in Oklahoma. Whoa. He made the point that it's not closed loop because people ultimately smoke it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, we're getting there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, down the line. That's so fun. I wanted to ask you all about what it's like working together and like how you, uh, to me, it seems like you have a really good relationship as co-founders. I'm curious what the secret is behind that. <laughs> well, you're gonna laugh and say you don't like each other. <laughs> I mean, to anybody else at small? <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> I mean, the thing. The we'll thing have about people call it, in and tell us anything. Yeah. So Adam and I have known each other for a really long time. You know, for backstory, we were roommates all throughout college, um, years and years ago. Uh, we were roommates in Brooklyn, and then we started a business together. Um, and and I, then think, I moved onto your couch. Yeah, they've lived. Yeah, we lived on my couch for a while, um, and I think that it's definitely been hard in the past. You know, I'm not gonna not gonna beat around the bush there, but I do think that um, the relationship allows you to be more direct than uh, if you had a more, you know, professional relationship. We do have a professional relationship, but if you didn't know someone that well, then you aren't able to be direct. Sometimes that's hard. Like those are hard conversations to have, but then also I think it's allowed us to move a lot faster than if we didn't have that relationship. And so, um, I think that that's, that's one of the, the, the benefits of it. Yeah. And, and oftentimes I know when Andrew's not going to like a thing that I'm doing. But you keep doing it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. I don't know. I, I, you know, I do this magazine cake scene with a really good friend of mine and we are always talking about our lives and then also talking about business together. And I had to like put us on Slack in part so that our text threads could just be us hanging out or at me asking to like borrow her shoes or something like that. But I think that knowing someone and trusting someone in that way is an asset in a business sense, you know? Sure. Smallhold has grown, grown pretty, pretty quickly. Um, and I think a big part of that is not having to have those discussions that are basic building blocks of other founder relationships that you kind of have to get out of the way at one point or another. So for instance, you know, starting the company, like what's the equity split? Um, we were able to come to an agreement very quickly, right? Uh, things like that um, because we know each other and have insight into each other's lives and also uh, just generally, um, you know, I know each other's tolerances in different ways, I think. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I, I normally ask people a question that I'm going to ask you, but I'll ask you the question, then I'll give you a clarification on it, which is, if you could have a signature menu item named after you, what would it be? And for the context of this question, I don't mean like a small hold sandwich somewhere. I mean like the Andrew, the Adam at an ice cream shop, at a bar, at a sandwich shop. What would that signature item be? I can name one for Andrew. You could do it for each other. That would be cute. Is it mayonnaise? It's mayonnaise. It's just mayo. <laughs> <laughs> it's just mayo. <laughs> Andrew's mayonnaise. Yeah. Yeah, I like mayonnaise. Okay, Andrew's you, you, you mayo and eat. avocado <laughs> sandwich. Mayonnaise sandwich. Uh, mayonnaise and, sandwich. and mayo sandwich? <laughs> sure. I mean, mayonnaise avocado sandwich, sure. 
mostly mayonnaise. Okay, what's the bread? Is Actually, it toasted? We did make a sandwich once. Uh, definitely toasted. Uh, I would say like a, you know, a sourdough, homemade sourdough bread, toasted mayonnaise on both sides, full like a whole avocado, maybe some microgreens. Do you want to throw on a mushroom or no? I mean, we can make we you know, we could use mushroom mayonnaise actually. Um, which, well, what is that? It's mm. Mushrooms and mayonnaise, like chopped up, mixed in. You can make a you can make a sauce out of the mushrooms and then mix it in with the mayonnaise. Okay, like a like a think of like a mushroom pesto. Yeah, yeah, and then you mix that like a pesto mayonnaise. Yeah, guys, this is a food podcast. I want all the details yeah. about what's on the sandwich. Well, do you know about mushroom ketchup? Do you know the history of that? No, tell me the, the brief history. The, the apparently ketchup the first ketchup was a mushroom ketchup tomato ketchup like was later in the game the first the first ketchups were a bunch of different types people were just using different materials with the most popular one was i believe in uh in england was the mushroom ketchup this podcast episode is just like potential true facts about mushrooms. I know. I don't <laughs> want to. That's a real fact. That's definitely a real fact. Okay, okay. I'm not sure the region, but I'm pretty sure it's it's from there. But you can find random recipes of it online. But it makes sense too if you think about it. Like mushrooms, umami, tomato, umami, uh, and you're making a sauce out of it. Yeah, I buy that. Well, okay. What's your menu item? Um, I mean, I have this dream for a restaurant called Fritters. <laughs> So it would be just Adam's fritters, and it could mean anything. Okay, what what would your fritter be? Is it a mushroom fritter? It could definitely be a mushroom fritter. Um, you know, any, anything in fritter form would, would really apply. Um, but yeah, a mushroom fritter would be good. Like a, a really good uh, lion's mane tempura would actually be be great. Tempured lion's mane. Yeah. Purple chico batter. I feel like you'd have like a secret fritter, like a hot dog. It's, you'd say it's a mushroom fritter, but it's actually hot dogs. Yeah, it's always actually hot dogs with some mushroom, <laughs> mushroom ketchup, mushroom ketchup for dipping. Yeah, yeah. mushroom ketchup sauce. Um, yeah, fritters are not the most exciting food, but I feel like they're the menu item that nobody won't order. A safe bet. Mm-hmm. Well, this was bizarre and very fun. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having us. Yeah, likewise. Abby Endler, welcome to Taste Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So we're going to talk about the world of crime and fiction and how maybe food plays in a role in fiction and crimes. But first, I want to hear about Criminal Types, the new podcast that you're launching soon or have launched already when this airs. Yes, I'm so excited. So Criminal Types is a podcast that's going to be going behind the scenes, kind of exploring what keeps the writers of our favorite scary stories up at night. We're really excited. <laughs> we have an incredible season of some best-selling authors and some kind of rising stars in the genre as well. It's going to be a ton of fun. So the show is like interviews with crime authors. Okay. Yes, exactly. So who do you have lined up? Do you have some good guests? We have an incredible array of guests. I'm obviously very biased here, but we have yeah. everyone from John Grisham. Oh, yeah, Ryan- heard of him. Yeah, you might have heard of him. Sure. John Grisham, Lisa Gardner, Riley Sager, Simone St. James. Um, Truly an incredible lineup. Wait, you got big, you got Grisham like season one? Grisham is season one, episode one. Wait, how do you (laughs) do like like an arc if if you're starting with Grisham? Listen, the idea here is to really, well, we got to lure people in with the big names, obviously, but the 
idea is to uh, give people the behind the scenes scoop on some of their favorite authors, but also to introduce them to new voices as well. So yeah. we have kind of, you know, the first two episodes are going to be Grisham and then this amazing debut author, Isabel Cañas, who's written a super incredible kind of gothic horror story. Mm-hmm. So I think it's going to be a great kind of flow to the season. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm watching Yellow Jackets. So Do you I'm, know what? I still haven't seen Yellow that's Jackets. That's like gothic horror at, at a great at a great level. I, I know I would be yeah. obsessed with it. My problem is that I just spend so much time reading yeah. that I can't keep up with new shows. I really can't do it. But I've heard amazing things about Yellow Jackets. No, it's cool. But we're, we're going to talk about books. But, what, you know, Abby, what drive what draws you to to the crime fiction? What, what Like this genre that, you know, many of our listeners may not read uh, for whatever reason, but it's it's actually one of the most popular genres out there. It is. I mean, you know, I think there's nothing better than an irresistible puzzle. I love the experience mm. of reading a book mm. that lets me, you know, just sink into the story and try to figure it out alongside the characters. It'll really surprise me, keep me hooked. I think there's something so satisfying about that. And I think that's obviously been the case for, you know, decades upon decades yeah. upon decades. <laughs> so what makes a great crime thriller? I, I feel like right now, um, I can think about a few that I've read over the years, but, um, you know, form- formula is, is sometimes um, a blessing in disguise because we know where we're going. But what make what makes it good in your in your words? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think an author said to me once that they think one of the reasons this genre has been so appealing for so long is the fact that you do go from that chaos to order at the end. And, you know, life, we don't always see justice served at the end, right? Like there's a lot of life that's really messy. But in a crime novel, you get that satisfaction of solving the puzzle. You get the answer at the end of the book. And that's something I always love. Um, I also think, you know, these stories just give us incredible characters. You yeah. think about like Agatha Christie's detective or Sherlock Holmes or some of the contemporary psychological thriller protagonists who have these wild stories Mm -hmm. that we just love to follow. Um, For me, I think that's what makes a really great crime story. So when you're talking to Grisham in episode one, and I'll link to it in the show notes, what exactly are you guys talking about? So we're getting into everything. I mean, he told some incredible stories about how his career got started. There's one story he told about how he literally had to hand sell copies of his first novel from the trunk of his car because people just, you know, they weren't rushing to buy the new John Grisham. He was an unknown quantity back then. So we talk about everything from his backstory to his new book, The Boys from Biloxi, which is inspired by this um, kind of crime unorganized crime gang called mm. the Dixie Mafia that mm. I'd never heard of before. Um, it's it's fascinating stuff. Dixie Mafia, man, yeah. sounds like a ri- rich text to, to mine from. It really it really was, honestly, and it was just so cool to have the opportunity to speak with someone like him yeah. who's been is, in this business for so long, Um, literally one of the best-selling thriller authors right now. <laughs> Definitely. Now, let me ask you about Anthony Bourdain, because Anthony Bourdain, to many, is, is Anthony Bourdain. He's the guy who was on television or wrote Kitchen Confidential. But to some, he's actually one of the better crime writers. Mm-hmm. Have you ever read any of Bourdain? You know what? I'm going to confess to you. I didn't even know that he was writing crime, that he wrote yeah. crime fiction until I was prepping for this yeah. interview. I had no idea. Yeah. So Bone in the Throat, I know, is probably his most famous uh, crime novel. But he's I think he wrote three or four. And there's a great article in Eater that I'll link to in the show notes that covers his history of, with his fiction. But you know, I think he, also, like you, is just drawn to chaos yeah. and maybe figuring out the chaos at the end. I never really thought about that. but There's something very satisfying about it. And I think when you look at crime novels across all different subgenres, you can see that as kind of a, a through line. So in the work that you uh, do on Instagram, too, Crime by the Book is your Instagram. You have a, like a large following. So, like, you're talking to crime authors all the time. Is there, like, a type? <laughs> you know, honestly, it sounds strange. 
crime do you mean is there a type of crime novel that I love or crime novelist that I love or is that I mean a person it's a great follow-up <laughs> I mean your podcast host you're following up here I feel like I'm wondering if it's like a type of person who yeah. writes crime yeah. fiction for a living you know what I'm gonna say they are the type is like just kind they are the kindest people I've ever talked to which you would not expect and it's been something yeah I think when I told my parents that I was kind of like you know <laughs> starting down this whole rabbit hole this crime fiction universe they were sort of like who are the people you're gonna be talking with and spending your time with they are the nicest people and I have a working theory that it's because they're able to get all of their aggression out on the page um you know yeah. they're so they're so kind and I think they're also curious I think when I talk with crime writers they are people People who are very inquisitive, yeah. they look at a situation and they just they just start to wonder what if, you know, I, I'm always amazed by their imagination and the way that they can kind of run wild with the most um, ordinary scenarios. Yeah, I think that's a good, good call. I think you have to be a certain have a certain level of of, of interest in uh, in plot and also just yeah. be inquisitive about the world yeah. to, to make up these these cases and not make them total Absolutely. boilerplate. Well, and smart, too. I mean, when you think oh, yeah. about it, I've, I've sometimes thought, like, should I try writing a crime novel? And I'm honestly just not sure I could make, like, the puzzle work. You know, I yeah. think that takes a ton of planning and plotting and just being able to see all the red herrings and the clues you're leaving for readers. It's a complicated genre. Abby, you can really do it. About it. You think so? Uh, yeah, no, I know for a fact. <laughs> I know that you, you, you read enough of it. It is, like, as, as most at the, at the least. Well, thank you. <laughs> Let me let's talk about food. I want to know: Is there any crime fic- fiction that you've read or or read about that has food at the center of it that I re- like our listeners should be checking out? A hundred percent. Okay, so major confession: probably the number one thing that I love aside from crime novels is the Great British Bake Off. Okay, and there is an incredible book that came out earlier this spring called The Golden Spoon by Jessa Maxwell, and it is a whodunit mystery that is centered around a reality TV baking competition, and the book is structured. If you're a Great British Bake Off fan, you're going to completely recognize this. But it's structured like there's like bread week and cake week and all this stuff. It's so good. It's so good. So demented. I love it. It's twisted. It's the perfect mashup of like Clue and Bake Off. I love that. (laughs) Oh, my God. And what what can be baked into the pies? Oh, my God. This isn't Sweeney Todd here. (laughs) I mean, it feels a little Sweeney. I feel like there's definitely like a way to put or put like a weapon that's like hidden inside a souffle. I love that. I love that. No, it's it's fantastic. (laughs) I would highly recommend that one. Let's talk about film, too. I mean, I know there's a crossover and, and this isn't a film podcast you're doing, but do you have a favorite food film? You know, I was actually just talking with our amazing producer, Pat, who we love dearly. Shout out, Pat Stengel. Shout out to Pat. I was just talking with him about the menu. Um, yeah. Have you seen that? I loved the menu. Oh, yeah. It was so good. Um, yeah. And, you know, thinking about food in crime films, obviously the number one thing that comes to mind is our friend Hannibal Lecter and his Chianti yeah. and fava beans, right? That's like the iconic scene. But, no, I think in terms of favorite food films, the menu would be up there for me. You I like the menu? I think I loved great. it. We've yeah. talked a lot about it on various segments, and we haven't had any of the actors on or the screenwriter, but I, I think— it's it said a lot. It, it was a nice foil to the bear, which was yeah. more, you know, dripping in reality, and, yeah. and obviously a satire is is not. And it was really smartly done. It was so smart. Anya Taylor Joy is incredible. Yeah, great film. Um, let me ask you a little bit about your own background. Mm-hmm. You went to school in Texas. You're moving back to Houston or moving to Houston. And we were chatting off mic about Houston, but I wanted to save it for the pod. I love this city. I want to talk about it all it's the time. It's the best, right? Yeah. What are you looking forward to most food Oh, my gosh. Everything. I mean, the Tex-Mex. Like, I could yeah. not get enough. I could just live in a vat of queso. I think I would yeah. be a very happy girl. So I'm very excited about that. Um, There's this great restaurant, Hugo's. I don't know if you've ever I, been. I've been to Hugo's. I, I got to say, Nymphas and Navigation is no, my place. No, I am not. Okay. You are my best friend down there. Also, 
also swears by Ninfas. I am not as much of a Ninfas I love this I mean, debate. Oh, tell tell me about Hugo's. <laughs> no, I loved it. I had like the most, I'm also vegetarian, so maybe that might inform some of my choices here. Yeah. Um, that's okay. <laughs> I had the most incredible, it was like some sort of veggie enchilada, and I'm not a food expert, so I could not mm-hmm. tell you all the intricacies yeah. of it, but it was killer. I loved it so much, and I'm already planning when I moved down there, the first Friday that I'm down there. You're going to Hugo's? Oh, I'm going to Hugo's. That's oh, yeah. That's cool. So wh- what draws you to—are you from Texas? <laughs> no, I'm from Connecticut. Yeah. And I um I went to—you know, I had kind of like the traditional Connecticut upbringing, like all-girls prep school from yeah. middle school Horses and high school. Involved. Oh, of course. Absolutely. Um, And I really wanted something different for college. So I went to Rice University yeah. in Houston and totally fell in love with the city. It's such a great place. And it doesn't get enough recognition, no, I think. It's kind of You're like right. an unsung hero of uh, of Texas. <laughs> I agree. I, I love it down there. I, I'm trying to get to Austin and Houston this summer, which is funny because it's summer but yeah. <laughs> ultimately one of my favorite food cities i also got to shout out the alabama ice house yep we love how do you know about all of this like, what's your ri- connection i've houston? written about houston i've been a bunch of times over yeah. the years did an event down there for a cookbook i wrote and cool. i think chris shepherd is one of our, our greatest chefs in america and honestly it's just a really cool city i love yeah. it there so what would you recommend what needs to be on my list and, restaurant wise you know what i think if you're going to get great food in Houston, you know, Korea, the Korean community and yeah. the Vietnamese communities yeah. are really prominent. And I know uh, it's a sprawling city. It's like a lot of driving. And when you pop into like a K-Town or a Vietnam, uh, I I can't remember the names offhand, but I've had some of the best pho in my life, including in Vietnam, in Houston. Wow. And then Chris Shepard, as I mentioned, great chef. You should check him out. Thank you so much for the recommendations. I mean, I, I'm, I'm down to talk about Houston and whatever. So, okay, so you've got Grisham. Where does this go? I mean, are you going to always be talking to authors? Are you going to talk to fans of crime fiction? That's a great question. I'm really excited because actually later this week, we're recording kind of a special episode that will be the finale to season one. Yeah. Um, we're going to be talking with Jennifer Barth, who's one of our editors at Knopf, and she kind of specializes in crime fiction. So I would love to bring in, you know, fans of the genre, people mm-hmm. who've devoted their careers to the genre as well, and just kind of get their perspectives too. I love that. Yeah. Okay, we can't leave without a couple more picks, favorite books that are maybe coming out. Let's okay. go there because I know you cover this extensively. All right, absolutely. So I'm going to say I'm looking ahead to the summer. One of my favorite authors, Riley Sager, who's going to mm-hmm. be a guest on the podcast. He has this incredible gothic thriller coming out called The Only One Left. It's inspired by Lizzie Borden. So it's all about yeah. what would it be like if Lizzie Borden was, you know, an older woman and had this home health aide coming to take care of her. And the home <laughs> health aide starts to figure out that there might be more to the story than what wow. we actually think happened. The home so, health is, is solving the mystery. She is. She absolutely. So that's a great one. And I'm also excited. One of my favorite authors, Joe Nesbo, big Norwegian yeah. kind of rock star thriller writer. Absolutely. He has a new book out in late May called Killing Moon that's really good as well. Yeah. Big Joe fan here. You are? Yeah, Incredible. definitely. And I've read some books. You know, it's funny. I'm thinking back. I think the first crime fiction I ever read was Peppermints in the Parlor. Did you ever read this no, book? No, what is this? It's like I was in like fourth or fifth grade. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That I remember it being extremely like very British. Yeah, um, yeah. And very like I was like stunned. I, was, I love wow. it. Do you read any like? Because I know. I mean, I, there's a whole world out there of like food inspired cozy mysteries. Have you ever read any of those? No, I don't really read too many mysteries. I feel like it's more genre like. I'm blanking right now, but yeah. I think if I'm, I'll dip into a Joe book once yeah. in a while. Yeah. But um, yeah, I don't really read like a cozy mystery. Yeah. I like that term. Yeah. Well, you got you have to read the Golden Spoon. You got to at least yeah. give that one a try because it is so much fun. I'm super down. <laughs> Abby, will you come back to the Taste Pockets, talk more about fiction, maybe in the fall? We can talk about some of the the up-and-coming titles. I would so love to, and I hope you'll um, give me a shout if you're in Houston this summer. Absolutely (laughs) enjoy it. Thanks, Abby and Larry. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. 
The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Eliza Abarbanel. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things happening.